Hello and welcome everybody to History 302. This is Dr. Tully. Today we're talking about the counterculture, 1964 to 1977. So give you a second to, you know, get on the Moodle and find the find a little uh, PowerPoint and we'll be ready to go. So the civil rights movement, uh, it was a success. It was a success. You know, we, we can get into a little bit more about all the different dynamics of it, you know, how big of a success, but... You know, the fact that it was getting a lot of attention, that was really the cause of a lot of talk around the nation, really emboldens other groups that have grievances. Uh, basically, they see the way that the Civil Rights Movement worked out, and there's a lot of different people that really feel that, you know what, we're going to use the tactics and the momentum of the Civil Rights Movement to kind of launch into our own. Uh, a lot of different groups to mention. We're not going to be talking about all of them today, uh, because, well, we're just not going to talk about all of them today, but however, they include things like women, um, LGBTQ, Latinos, um, students, a whole bunch of other groups. And there's a growing sense of dissatisfaction with the status quo. Uh, they feel that like this kind of post-World War II, you know, safe, uh, we talked about the conformity of the 50s, trying to you know, have a certain um, expectation for the way people should act, was not, in, was not a very fulfilling life, but also not realistic considering reality. It is really key to mention that 1964 is a very seminal year in U.S. history, uh, mainly because 1963 was pretty rough as a year. 1963 was pretty rough, and it actually ends with the assassination of uh, John Kennedy. Uh, Kennedy is killed at the end of 1963 in November. And so that kind of, uh, you know, puts a damper on everything. Uh, the other the other reason why 1964 is a big year for these protests is because that's the first year that baby boomers went to college. Remember, baby boomers were typically born in 1946, or after the World War. And so they would go, be 18 in 1964. This is one of the big reasons why it happens. And the one we're going to talk about early on is the student protest. Uh, the student protests, the student movements, were a very big series of protests that happened beginning around 1964, when baby boomers come to these college campuses. Now, a term I want you to know is in loco parentis. In loco parentis. In loco parentis means pretty much in the lieu of parents. That is what colleges consider themselves to be for most of their history up until this point. Remember, for most of U.S. history, college was something done only for the very rich and upper middle class. Uh, however, thanks to the GI Bill and other expansion of education, you know, more states are paying for education. They're sponsoring more state schools, like a school like Nichols, for instance. Uh, more people are getting involved in the college system. But previously, most schools earlier, uh, they said they existed in the place of parents. Basically, they acted in the stead of parents. Uh, they consider themselves to exist for the benefit of the parents of the students, not necessarily the students themselves. Um, basically, you know, when a, when a child goes to a college campus, basically they want the, the, the parents to be, you know, assured that the school is acting as the parents of the child if they're on the college campus. Uh, this manifested in a lot of different ways. Um, There's a lot of, like, honor codes, a lot of rules. Uh, for the longest time, for instance, you had dorm mothers, uh, dorm mothers were pretty much these, you know, older women, like, you know, generally senior citizens who, who lived in a dorm room, who lived in the dorms, and basically assured that, like, you know, boys and girls weren't doing too much together. No hanky-panky, no nothing like that. You had to sign in and sign out if you're leaving the dorm at night, that sort of thing. 
Um, why they basically view that the students were children and not necessarily adults in their own right. Even though they were 18, they're able to like you know be drafted in the war, or if they weren't in college, they'd be considered an adult. On a college campus, they were considered children, and the college was considered to be their parent. Uh, considering the parents were the ones who ultimately paid tuition for the, most students, that's another reason why the schools felt justified in doing so. But a group of students feel that this is wrong. Basically, there's a new influx of students who feel that this system is not good. The college should exist for the good of the student, not for the good of the parent. The parent is not the one there. The parent is not the one being trained. That They say that colleges should exist for the benefit of the students themselves. Now, emboldened by their experience in Freedom Summer in Mississippi, which um, I guess I didn't talk about that in this class. It's something I talk about a lot in my African-American history class. Uh, basically, Freedom Summer was when um, a bunch of kind of elite, uh, you know, white college students came down to Mississippi at the request of uh, of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, to um, register voters and also have freedom schools. Freedom schools. Uh, basically, a lot of these white students came from like Ivy League schools or other fairly elite institutions, and you know they experienced life in Mississippi. And when they came back, they wanted to use some of that same energy and some of that same uh, organizational principles on their own college campuses. And instead of challenging racism, they want to challenge what they view are very restrictive free speech regulations at most college campuses. Um, the most notable of these groups is the Students for a Democratic Society, or SDS. If you go over one slide, you will see, or well, two slides, you'll see SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. It actually begins at Michigan, at the University of Michigan, but it really becomes crystallized at the University of California, Berkeley. Now, we need to talk about Berkeley for a little bit. Um, Berkeley, uh, as a town, it's, it's, it's in the Bay Area. It's a little bit north of, of San Francisco. Uh, nowadays, it's considered to be a very liberal college campus, if not the most liberal of you know, state college campuses. However, in this time period, it's also the head of the um, University of California system. Uh, UC Berkeley is pretty much the main University of California school. There's tons of colleges in California, but UC Berkeley is considered the number one. Um, at this time period, Berkeley as a college institution, and I, I should mention this about colleges in general, don't misinterpret me, but most colleges tend to be fairly lowercase c conservative places. Conservative in the sense of like, you know, they have endowments, you know, don't rock the boat too much. You know, the, the personal politics of some professors might be pretty radical, but as a whole, the college as an institution is like, hey, we need to protect this endowment. We're not going to change anything too, too much. Very big on tradition, things like that. Now, Berkeley, because they were acting in loco parentis in the lieu of the parents, uh, they refused to allow certain groups to come on campus to give speeches. Um... Different organizations, you know, wanted to come to the college campus, and basically Berkeley refused. A lot of it was due to politics, both on the left and the right. They said anything overly partisan should not be allowed on a college campus. Now, that's not the case nowadays. Uh, nowadays, I mean, in a non-corona world, I should say, nowadays, if a, if a group of students wants to invite somebody to speak on campus... They're generally allowed to, as long as it's done at the request of the students, not necessarily at the institution itself. But at this time period, uh, Berkeley was not allowing certain political, you know, groups to come onto campus and give speeches or have programming. 
Now, the, the students that were involved in SDS, uh, remember it starts in Michigan, but it really crystallizes, becomes a real movement because of what happens at Berkeley. They say this is wrong. And so ultimately, they start having a student free speech movement. If you go back, if you go over one slide, you'll see them holding the free speech shine in front of Berkeley's big gates. Later on, there's another one. Um, basically, they're using some of the same protest momentum, some of the same techniques that they learned involved in Freedom Summer and the Civil Rights Movement. And in time, it was a success. Uh, Berkeley lifted some restrictions. Berkeley lifted some restrictions, basically said that, hey, we're allowing more people to come to speak on our college campus. Um, you know, it, you know, we, we do exist for the, for the students, not necessarily the parents. They kind of laxened in loco parentis. And this kind of became the beginning of the student movement. Basically, college campuses start changing quite a bit, basically be more friendly towards the students than they were previously. Uh, mainly more for the students than they were previously. Like I said, we're not, I'm not going into crazy depth about this. Like This is a very much a surface level, but before we get into the pop culture of the time, I want you to understand all this stuff. Uh, most most uh, baby boomers, you know, most of the people involved in SDS, uh, they were not enamored of the lives of their parents. They are like, why would I want to become just like my parents? My parents seem miserable. You know, they're trapped in suburbia. Uh, they had grown up with television and seen that everything it said wasn't necessarily what they had. And they really don't like the safe suburban existence. Uh, there's this idea that you're rebelling against the, the sense of security, the sense of safety. Now, another protest that does start to grow, and remember, I am condensing this immensely. I could go on quite a bit more. If you have questions, ask about me in class or just email me about this. But another protest that really starts to grow in this time period was anti-war. Uh, the anti-war movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement, um, was seen to be at college campuses, but it's actually more complex. Uh, believe it or not, uh, college campuses actually tended to have higher approval rates of the Vietnam War than other places in the country during this time period. Now, what is the war in Vietnam? Well, <laughs> I'm gonna... I'm not laughing as war is funny, but it's just it's a very complex situation. I'll just say this. There is a war going on in Vietnam between communist and not communist, who they're not exactly democratic. The guy we're supporting in South Vietnam is not the greatest guy on the planet. Uh, the U.S. gets involved for reasons because of the containment doctrine. Uh, the Cold War is very much going on in this time period. The U.S. says it wants to you know, stop the spread of uh, communism wherever it goes. And also, I should mention, this war does not start under Lyndon Johnson. It starts a bit earlier. However, Johnson is the one who really gets blamed for it. He gets blamed for it quite a bit. Now, there is a draft going on in this time period, and uh, the draft is especially unpopular. Uh, the draft is especially unpopular, mainly because of the perception of who was drafted and how deferments were obtained. Uh, there was a perception that the draft was disproportionately taking people of color and also poorer people. Now, is that true? Kind of. Um, the easiest ways to get draft deferments, get out of being drafted, by the way, the number one easiest way to get out of a draft in this time period was to be a college student. Uh, being a college student would generally get you out of the draft. Uh, so that is one of the reasons why the war actually tended to have higher approval ratings in colleges anywhere else. It's because the students knew that they were fairly safe from being drafted. Not, not a, it wasn't impossible, but it was uh, not as likely. Uh, the second most likely way to get out of having the draft, uh, there's no other way to put it, uh, having means. 
having money. Uh, basically, if you have like position or power, or prestige in town, you might be able to find out that uh, you know you're getting out, you're, you're, that you're going to get drafted, or a way to get out of it. You might have a way to bribe the draft official. Or honestly, sometimes you might just know that you're going to get drafted and you can get around it. Uh, for instance, my okay, <laughs> my uncle, I guess he is, my, my aunt's ex-husband, my aunt's ex-husband during this time period, uh, his dad was a, like an elected official in a town. And basically he found out the day before that basically my ex-uncle's draft number came up. And so because his dad was like an elected official, uh, my ex-uncle was able to enlist in a different branch of military before he got drafted. And basically by enlisting in a different branch, he got he got transferred to Germany, which is very far away from Vietnam, and pretty much spent Vietnam in Germany fairly safe. So that was something that your ordinary citizen would not have been able to do. So what results to this is an army that is poor and darker than the general population, and some folks do not like this. Uh, some folks do not like this. Um, that's not necessarily the case all the time, weirdly enough. Um, the army as a whole actually kept up with demographic trends of the U.S. as a whole, but that's generally people who volunteered. When it comes to the drafted people, generally people who didn't go to college, who in this time period were generally poor, and also uh, there were less opportunities for minorities for education in this time period, it was viewed that the draft was very unfair. Likewise, a lot of a lot of people protesting at college college campuses don't like how buddy buddy some of these colleges are to the military. Uh, for instance, there are like you know chemical labs at various college campuses that are making chemical weapons for the war, and some people didn't like that. Also, a big one people don't like is that remember how I said that um, you know if you're a college student you could get out of being drafted. Well. If you flunk out of school, you lose that protection. And so sometimes, school registrar's office would send a student's grades to the Army, to the Army recruiter, before they sent it to the student if the student was about to be kicked out. So you could see how there might be some issues for privacy and that sort of thing. And ironically, I should mention this, before the Tet Offensive, most Americans support the war, and college campuses tend to have a higher approval rating throughout the war. And so, but there are some people protesting it. If you go over one slide, you'll see, you know, we won't go, we won't resist... Uh, peace in Vietnam, in the war in Vietnam, use your head, not your draft card, no more war in Vietnam, you know, self-determination of Vietnam, this idea that there are young people protesting the war, and it really comes to a head on November, sorry, on May 4th, 1970, happens to be my dad's 20th birthday, he said it was like the worst birthday ever, uh, was at Kent State in Ohio. Kent State is a fairly, you know, it, it's, it's really identical to Nichols in some way, about the same size as Nichols, um, mainly a regional university, you know, it's mainly serving the people around there. It's also very close to a National Guard outpost. Basically, you do have some student protesters at Kent State. They start protesting against the war in Vietnam. Um, you know, they, they, some people get a little rowdy. It's mainly students, but they do have some outside people coming in. Uh, basically, the National Guard is called in to theoretically keep order. Um, there's some scuffles, there's some yelling. Uh, basically how it ends, if you go over one slide, basically the National Guard shoots into a crowd of students and four students are killed. Four students are killed in this time period. And that really is seen as a galvanizing thing where it's like the stakes seem a lot higher. And also it seems that the U.S., you know, the, the military, the, the squares, as you will, are really trying to crack down on these people. And a lot of these protesters feel that, you know what, 
Maybe the U.S. doesn't have anything for me. Maybe the life my parents had doesn't really have anything for me. And this is where we get into, go over one slide, those damn dirty hippies. Those damn dirty hippies. There they are. Uh, it kind of begins in the 60s. I, I should mention, very, very, very uh, upfront, that most people are not hippies in this time period. Most people in the 60s and 70s are not hippies by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, there's always some, but most, most people were not. But there are some young people that really feel that the type of life they've been tished towards seems miserable. You know, the idea of like being just like your mom and dad, you know, living in the white picket fence, having 2.5 children, you know, working a job you don't like, uh, being racist and things like that. All these norms, you know, expectations for religion and things like that. Um, well, a lot of it is just really felt like, you know, we don't want this. And so they kind of rebelled and start like embracing uh, an element of rejection, period, just in general. If you go over one slide, you'll see, for instance, you know, Summer of Love. You see all these hippies together. They're hanging out. They're all young. Some of them are babies, it looks like. Some of those, some of those kids are babies. If you go over one more slide, you'll see all these hippies in front of their hippie bus. If you go over one more slide, you'll see Dr. Timothy Leary. I should mention him. Uh, Dr. Timothy Leary, he is a Harvard, like, chemist. Um, he invents a new drug called LSD. LSD, uh, originally made for the military, ironically enough. It's a psychedelic. It's a psychedelic that he says pretty much, hey, this is the best stuff. Um, it's going to be good for, for you. He, he pretty much encourages young people to turn on, tune in, and drop out. Basically, like, turn on to drugs, you know, turn on to how great drugs are, tune in, listen to, like, you know, psychedelic music, and drop out, kind of drop out of society and what people expect. This, this, it was kind of pushed that, you know what, maybe the life of your parents is pretty awful, maybe everything your parents are doing is not the greatest. Um, also, it's not like your parents aren't using drugs at this time period, uh, things like tranquilizers or... Um, Kind of like proto-Prozac were used a lot, particularly in women. Uh, a lot of women were not enamored of the whole um, homemaker lifestyle. And so they had things like Mama's Little Helper, they called it. It was pretty much, it was drugs, uh, quaaludes, designed to kind of like relax people who were otherwise pretty not happy. You can see here, though, with, you know, with Timothy Leary for his LSD, basically saying it's a great drug. You should take it. It's going to help out everything. <clears throat> Now, this impact was most directly felt in rock and roll music. Uh, rock and roll music really shifts away from its more southern blue-collar roots to kind of a more far-out sound, if you'd call it. Um, far-out. Uh, I have some examples here. Some you may or may not be familiar with. Probably familiar with all of them, though. Uh, for instance, Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix, a uh, member of the 27 Club, because he dies when he's 27. Um, you can look, click the YouTube link right there. Basically, the way he plays the guitar is unlike anything else anybody's heard. You know, he's he's doing things with his guitar playing technique that just seem like out of this world. You know, he's later burning his guitar. Um, he's a black man from Seattle, weirdly enough. He part of the Great Migration. His parents moved there for, you know, jobs. Uh, by the time we get to the 60s, he's very well known as, like, almost taking rock and roll back to its black roots, but it's a different black roots because he's, he's just doing the psychedelic stuff, which is unlike anything else anybody's ever heard. Uh, another member, if you go over one slide, of the 700, oh, the 700 Club, oh, Pat Robertson, I'm tired, 27 Club is Janis Joplin. Uh, Janis Joplin, I believe she's from Texas, kind of a southern singer. Uh, 
she is not a conventionally good singer. She's a very distinct singer, if that makes sense. Very distinct sounding. Not necessarily good. Known for the raspiness and the power of her voice. Uh, you're, you, you, you know, you'll, if you watch a YouTube clip right there, you'll, you'll see some Janis Joplin singing. Another group like that, uh, Grateful Dead. Grateful Dead is another group. Yeah, you can. I, I have probably one of their shorter songs right there if you go on YouTube. Uh, the Grateful Dead is known primarily as a kind of a jam band. Um, very much known for like the psychedelic elements of the fact that like their songs last forever. Like theoretically, they, they last the length of a drug trip. As you listen to the Grateful Dead, and, and this is, is this kind of idea that you like start listening to this rock music. Um, it, it goes along with drugs. Supposedly, it's more far out, psychedelic. Uh, this idea of you know, explore the mind, Eastern religions, very much a rejection of the Western thoughts. And, and if you go more, even the Beatles, even the Beatles, as they go on, get more into this kind of psychedelic elements. Now, hippies themselves, I should mention, they have different um, levels of you know engagement. Go over one slide. Different levels of rebellion. Um, there's more mundane acts of rebellion, like you know, hey, we're you know we're gonna kind of challenge clothing, you know, clothing expectations, or uh, racial boundaries. You know, hey, we're gonna hang out with people of different races because you know you've told us that they're scary or bad. We're not gonna do that. Or you've told us that like you know women have to wear dresses and we're not gonna wear that. We'll wear pants, but men can you know they can they can like grow their hair long and have shaggy beards. That sort of rejection. That's kind of the more mundane acts. But there are also some extreme levels. Uh, you have this idea of communes, um, an utter rejection of capitalism. This idea that everybody's going to live together on this type of like hippie commune. We're going to stay together. You know, have no property, have no money, uh, share and share alike. That sort of thing. Um, there's no. Some of them like reject jobs altogether. Uh, you know, they they reject this idea of jobs. Reject the idea of having an occupation. Um, extensive use of drugs. Extensive use of drugs. Extensive, extensive, extensive use of drugs. And also something like free love. Uh, free love basically saying you can have sex who you want to, when you want to, wherever you want to. It doesn't have to be with wedlock. It doesn't have to be like one man and a woman. It could be two men or two women or three people or whatever. You don't have to be married. Uh, a lot more loose. A lot more, you know, quote unquote free love. Uh, San Francisco becomes seen as the as a center of the movement uh, with the Summer of Love in 1967, which is ironic because at the end of the summer, uh, the leaders of the hippie movement called the hippie movement over because of all the attention. They said basically we've accomplished everything we can with the hippie movement. You know, now that the general public is aware of it, we've lost control over it. Um, there's nothing more to be done with it. That's not really seen as the end of the hippie though. Uh, if you go over one slide, the hippie movement theoretically reaches its apex at Woodstock. Uh, the Woodstock was a um, it was a music festival uh, held in August of 1969. Um, a lot of bands played. It was only a three day concert, and it rained most of the time. And everybody claimed that it was wonderful and good. It was just seen as the beginning of free love, and everybody just listened out and chilled out. Um, if you you know go over one slide, you'll see like nudity. You know, Jimi Hendrix played music. It all seems wonderful. All seems great. It seems that maybe the hippies can make something out of it. But that's not how reality works. So if you go over one slide, the, hall of the, the fall of the hippies. The fall of the hippies. Uh, with the success of Woodstock, there were calls for a West Coast version. There was calls for a West Coast version of, of Woodstock. 
and Altamont, California was chosen. Altamont was chosen. I mean, it's in the Bay Area. Remember, San Francisco was seen as the home of the hippie movement. Um, seen as a pretty logical thing to do, have the West Coast version of Woodstock. Uh, most of the same bands were performing. Uh, however, with the exception that now they were bringing in um, the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones were also going to play this. The Rolling Stones were a pretty big band. They still are a pretty big band. And basically they said, hey, we need some protection. We need to have like some sort of security guards with us. Um, this is if, if, it, if it didn't end with people dying, it's, it's, it would have been very funny. But, you know, the Rolling Stones want security. And generally speaking, in the concert world, you get cops to pr- provide the security. Uh, off-duty cops are, are very much the normal thing you do for security. If you need security for a concert, get some cops, get them to do that. Uh, they don't want cops because, you know, it's the hippies, they're doing a lot of drugs and stuff like that. Uh, cops would kind of ruin the scene if you catch them adrift. And so they need to find alternative security. Like I said, if this wasn't so tragic, it'd be hilarious. But they they uh, they hire instead the Hell's Angels. Uh, they hire the Hell's Angels uh, to to act as security for their concert. Uh, not the best idea, because the Hell's Angels are notoriously very racist, and they're also a violent bar- biker gang. But they're also notoriously very racist. Um, if you don't know that about biker gangs, they are. Uh, biker gangs are very much segregated by race. And remember, this does not mesh with the hippies' kind of, you know, free love and, um, you know, no racial division philosophy. Because during the concert, while the Rolling Stones were playing and the Hells Angels were providing security, um, a black kid may or may not have killed, pulled a gun. We, we don't know exactly. Um, a black kid may or may not have pulled a gun. What we do know is pretty much the Hells Angels beat him to death with, like, pool sticks. If you, if you go over one side, you will see the Hells Angels out, Outmont, pretty much killing people. And this causes a bit of a rebellion, a bit of a riot. In the chaos, four more deaths occur. And this is kind of seen as, like, the, the end of the hippie movement, in a sense, because there are a lot of inherent problems with the hippies. There's a lot of inherent problems within the hippie movements. Um, for instance, uh, drug use. Uh, drugs are fun, I suppose. I don't, I don't do them, but uh, although drug use could be fun, they also cause addiction, particularly with hallucinogenics. Uh, hallucinogenics are very addictive, and you could literally like have your brain fried if you have a bad trip. Like it could do permanent damage to you. I mean, not everybody making LSD was a Harvard-trained doctor like, uh, you know, Timothy Leary was. A lot of times they're just, you know, people making it. And you can get really sick if it's a bad case, and it can, like, really mess you up. Uh, Plus, with a hallucinogenic, I mean, they are very addictive. Uh, Another problem with hippies is by not having a job, uh, that can cause crime. Um, By not having a job, it's very common for hippies to, like, steal or whatever to to make ends meet or just put food on the table. Um, kind of a bad thing whenever you reject money, but the rest of society doesn't. Uh, sometimes it can lead you towards crime. Nobody's very keen on it. Uh, one that is underreported, one that is underreported, but actually makes a lot of sense if you think about it and kind of obvious, is sexism. Uh, hippies were quite sexist, uh, particularly when it comes to free love. When you talk about free love, saying like, oh, anybody can have sex with anybody, uh, what if you don't want to have sex with somebody? Well, 
for a lot of women, this ends up with a lot of sexual assaults within the hippie movement. Basically, if a woman said, hey, I don't want to have sex with this person or feels pressured into having sex with somebody, uh, they're accused of being a square or not really down for the movement. In fact, the whole women's liberation scene, uh, you know, second wave feminism, really comes in large part to how bad women were treated in the civil rights movement and in, within the hippie counterculture. Uh, basically, for a lot of these things, like for instance, in the civil rights movement, uh, black women were allowed to be members of these organizations. They were not allowed to lead these organizations or take more prominent roles because they want to reserve it for men, even though women were most of the ones doing the work. Likewise, we talk about the hippie counterculture. Well, it's actually the same thing with SDS. Uh, same thing with the Students for Democratic Society. A lot of women made up the movement. They were not given a leadership position. With hippies, you have the whole free love thing leads to a lot of sexual assaults or you know shaming women for not sleeping around. Uh, still, I should mention, a lot of the elements of the counterculture remained in American society into the 70s, and a whole lot of it becomes mainstream. A lot of like hippie fashion, a lot of the hippie culture in terms of music, uh, it kind of becomes more mainstream, even if the hippies themselves are viewed as a punchline. You know, the idea of the, the joking, oh, those damn dirty hippies, becomes fairly common in the 70s, even though a lot of elements of hippie culture are indeed appropriated. I should mention, if you go over one slide, the guy you're going to be reading about is Charles Manson, who is terrifying. Uh, he's the other end of the hippie movement. Um, basically, he, he kind of styled himself as a leader of people. Uh, you'll read more about him, like I said. If you've never heard of Charles Manson, he just died recently. I don't think anybody's sad to see him go. Uh, kind of comes in as a hippie leader, kind of like, I don't want to say he hypnotizes people, but he kind of like, you know, pumps young women up with drugs and delusions of grandeur, and he like, uses them as like, like, prostitution bait almost, like that's how he gets his money, is by sending his like, female followers to sleep with people, and he says he's going to claim a, he's going to start a race war, he's going to, he calls it Helter Skelter, basically he's going to get the black people and the white people to fight each other, and the black people are going to win, but then they're going to anoint him their king because black people are stupid, like he's racist and sexist. Anywho, um, you know, like I said, you're going to read the article, find out more about Manson. Uh, basically, the Sharon Tate murder, basically he murders a Hollywood star who is pregnant. Well, he doesn't murder her, but his followers do at his advice, basically at his urging. He would go to jail. That's also seen as kind of the end of the hippies with this kind of dark, charismatic figure. And speaking of punchlines, let's talk about disco. We're, we're doing another punchline here. Uh, disco. Uh, disco originated in the mid-60s and was very much first seen as a European phenomenon. Uh, seen as a European thing, uh, the idea of disco really comes from, a lot of it comes from Europe. This idea where you go to a club to listen to music played on recorded media, not a live club. That's the big difference between disco and the genres that come before is this idea that you listen to it not live. Um, disco is very central to technology. Uh, technology and disco really go together very... It's heavily dependent upon recorded music, electronic lighting, the sense of place where, hey, we're going to have a dance club where we listen to recorded music, not listen to live music. Um, it does incorporate a lot of the elements of the hippies, such as racial boundaries being relaxed, a very significant pro-sex stance, and casual drug use. But unlike the hippies, it was fundamentally apolitical. It was almost as though, like, hey, here's part of the stuff from the hippies we like. We're just going to dance and do stuff like that. 
As I mentioned, it originated in Europe, but in time, it starts moving across the eastern part of the United States. Comes at first in places like New York and Philadelphia. Later on, it kind of moves across the country. Um, I cannot iterate this enough, though. Uh, the demographics of disco, what it was seen as, because it becomes a punchline, it's seen as very Latino, very black, and especially gay, especially homosexual. There's a very strong coalition this time period of disco being homosexual, of being you know gay, being Latino, kind of undermining you know theoretically traditional American expectations in a different way than the hippies. By the time we get to the mid seventies, disco is starting to take over the airwaves, and it you know it it, it it's pretty. Re- There's a lot of reasons why disco becomes so popular. I mean, it has tons of pop hits. Um, it's indeed catchy. I mean, disco music is quite catchy. Uh, but there's also a sense that the 60s were just so heavenly, and the economy of the 70s is just so bad in the United States that people just want to dance. There's this concept that, you know, everything was so heavy, we need to just be light and kind of forget our troubles for a while, this sort of thing. Theoretically, that's given at the disco. Uh, a couple bands that I want to talk about, a couple worth mentioning, you have Casey and the Sunshine Band. As you can see, they are uh, they are a mixed race band. You have black and white people in that band together. Um, you also have Gloria Gaynor, Gloria Gaynor, seen right there. She's the kind of the queen of the disco. She will survive. Uh, the weird one that gets picked out is the Bee Gees. Uh, the Bee Gees, they're from the Isle of Man. They're theoretically English. Well, Isle of Man. Uh, they're very white, which is unusual for disco in this time period. Uh, they're brothers, the, the Gibb brothers. They're you know the, the Gibb brothers all together. Uh, they become seen as like disco kings because of uh, a movie we'll talk about in just a second. Um, like I said, all these groups are fairly young. They embody a very pro-gay and relaxing of racial boundaries. Um, you know, racial boundaries were not as strong and hard and fast within the disco genre. Um, you know, like something with Casey and the Sunshine Band. Uh, likewise, the appropriation of, uh, you know, men with longer hair, maybe a little bit more of a relaxed stance to sexuality. I, I should also mention um, the birth control pill was around in this time period. So basically you have birth control pill, but no AIDS. So it was seen as a especially freeing time for um, sexual oh, promiscuity, shall we say. Basically the idea that you can have, quote-unquote, consequence-free sex um, unprotected. Well, I mean, you have, you have birth control, but not with a condom or anything. Uh, probably the most uh, gay of the disco acts is the Village People. If you if you click on that YouTube link, you will see the Village People performing "Go West." Um, they were viewed as exceptionally gay, even for the '70s. Even for disco, the Village People are viewed as gay. It's weird how much mainstream success they have found. Uh, I will just say that because for the time period, they were ludicrously gay, like insanely gay. Uh, a lot of gay iconry. Their songs are about gay stuff. You know, um, Go West is about going to, like, San Francisco because it's a better place to live. Y- YMCA is talking about staying at the YMCA because that's a place where you can live when you're a gay person this time period. Uh, join the Navy in the Navy. That's that's another one. A lot, of, a lot of not even subtle gay undertones. They're overtones in the village people's music. And yet they find a lot of mainstream success primarily because the songs are just that catchy. If you go one more slide, I actually found the one group that's even gayer than the village people. That'd be Boys Town Gang. Um, Boys Town Gang. 
Uh, they do a cover of uh, Can't Take My Eyes Off of You, which you can click right there for YouTube. I should mention it's very common for disco to do covers of earlier hits. That's something you see quite a bit in the disco world. Now, disco, it gets a lot of criticism in this time period, but it's still g- seen as generally pretty popular. Like I said, economy sucks. Everybody's just kind of overwhelmed with the heaviness of the 60s. There is some backlash, though, about the, the blackness and particularly the gayness of disco. Um, but ironically, disco's biggest mainstream moment is going to come in 1977. 1977 is a pretty big year, thanks in large part to one movie called Saturday Night Fever which is seemingly about disco. Um, And by the way, there are so many crappy disco movies that come out in the 70s. I wrote, I had to do research on this stuff, and there's a lot of crappy movies I will never recommend to you. I'm not even recommending Saturday Night Fever. If you like it, I'm sorry. But um, it's not the best made movie. It's mainly just an excuse for musical things to come together. But it does uh, really play with the expectations of disco quite a bit, particularly because the hero of Saturday Night Fever, uh, let's just call him John Travolta. I'm not even going to tell you what the character's name is because it doesn't matter. It's John Travolta. Uh, John Travolta is a straight, white, blue-collar guy, which wasn't exactly true to most disco folks. Uh, Most disco folks were, like, you know, black or brown. A lot of them weren't straight. Uh, most of them don't really have jobs or stuff. Uh, well, not like blue-collar jobs like uh, John Travolta is in Saturday Night Fever. Uh, it does mainstream the mess out of disco culture, but it also makes it very easy targets for the culture as a whole. I mean, within a few years, there's going to be disco sucks parties. Uh, they burn disco records. Uh, mainly, though, it's not really a criticism of the music. It's a criticism of like the non-white da- gay disco culture as a whole. Uh, there's a general conservative backlash against the elements of counterculture that existed in this time. I don't have it here. I wish I did have it here on um, on Moodle. But just just YouTube or Google um, Ogie from Muskogee by Merle Haggard. This idea that it's a song talking about how like it's kind of a anti-counterculture. It's like reaffirming, quote, we're good Americans. You know, we don't burn our draft cards. We're not like those damn dirty hippies. Uh, you have this quite a bit. Like, by the time we get to the late 70s, and especially once we get into the 80s, there's very much a conservative, you know, straight, white, male backlash against the counterculture. But that's not the biggest thing that happens in 1977. The biggest thing that happens in 1977, and good God, maybe the biggest thing ever to happen to American pop culture, is a movie made by a dude named George Lucas. Go over one slide. You know it. Star Wars. Uh, George Lucas got his start with a movie called American Graffiti, which is a nostalgic look back in the 1950s. And then he's like, you know what? I've kind of got this idea for another nostalgic movie, which is going to be kind of hearkening to the sci-fi serials of my past. Uh, Whenever he was a kid, things like Flash Gordon, that sort of thing. He's like, you know what? I'm going to make my own movie out of this. And so the resulting film really embodied so much of this time Mainly by combining a lot of different stuff. Uh, One thing about the original Star Wars, it is a lot of different movies mashed together. It's got like samurai movie influence, uh, the Jungian hero's journey, World War II propaganda, uh, westerns, uh, the kitchen sink. Uh, It is is a big thing. It's a big thing, huge thing. Combines everything together. And it really resonates with an America that was looking for some form of hope, 
escapism and fondness for the past. That is one thing about Star Wars, is that it, I mean, it's called Star Wars A New Hope. I mean, the first movie is called Star Wars A New Hope. But it combines, like, it's a hopefulness, it's escapism, but it's also nostalgic for the past, because Star Wars, even though, I mean, come on, it's in a galaxy a long time ago, a long time ago in the galaxy far, far away. You know, it's the fact that this happened in the past, even though it's futuristic, and it's, you know, tapping into World War II stuff and samurai movies, and, like, it's very much an old film, if that makes sense, using new technology. Same thing like a Disney or something. In fact, it's no shock that Disney now owns Star Wars. And it also birthed the idea of the major Hollywood blockbuster. If you go over one side, you'll see people waiting in line for Star Wars. One more time, you'll see them in front of Man's Chinese Theater, all waiting for Star Wars. It really makes the major summer Hollywood blockbuster. Now, technically, Jaws is first, but I'd say Star Wars is a bigger thing. As well as, if you go over one more slide, the birth of modern merchandising. This is huge. Modern merchandising begins with Star Wars. They merchandise the crippity crap out of this movie. And it's still pretty merchandised, I'll admit. But we talked about this earlier, how like basically in America we like to buy our allegiance by like showing what we like, by what we buy, what we purchase. And you have that with Star Wars. You know, even though it's theoretically... I mean, I, I wouldn't even say it's a children's movie. It's kind of like a movie for everybody. It's a fantasy movie that kind of, you know, it's appropriate for children. There's nothing too violent or too sexual in it. But, uh, you know, there is some violence, and, you know, Princess Leia is a girl. So, okay, Princess Leia is not really a sex movie. Uh, she is by the third movie. Anywho, but more than 40 years after its release, Star Wars is still a major film franchise and a cultural milestone, and it's really steeped in this very countercultural elements. I mean, the, the fact that Star Wars resonates so much with the population is highly dependent upon the fact that it is so ingrained with a time period that wasn't going so great. This also seems the beginning of quote-unquote nerd culture in the mainstream. Uh, everybody likes Star Wars before this time. Uh, things like you know, sci-fi and comic books were viewed as very much something just for the insiders. And next week, we're actually going to be talking about nerd culture some more, when I talk about, well, comic books. Comic books and how they kind of relate to this. Um, so that's that. This is Dr. Tully for History 302. I'm telling you good day. Thanks so much. Dr. Tully's History Lectures are brought to you by Noble Otter Shaving Products. NobleOtter.com. Nobody's going to beat our otter when it comes to shaving. Dr. Tully's History Podcast is also brought to you by Bucky's. Bucky's Beaver Gas Stations. It's all over and totally on his cups. Thank you so much. Be sure to tune in next week for comic books. <laughs>